Hi and welcome to the ITGP podcast. Today we are here with Bridget Kenyon. Hi Bridget. Hello. Um, I'm Sophie Sayer and uh, I also have my colleague Nicola Day. Hello. And Camden with us as well. Hiya. <laughs> um, and today we're going to talk about the ISO 27001 controls, a guide to implementing and auditing, uh, due to be published here at ITGP on the 16th of September. So Bridget, can you give us a brief summary please about what the book is about? Basically, it's you've got a copy of the standard, you've maybe done some training courses and you want to implement it in your environment. It gives you really useful advice on what to do with Annex A, the big bumper list of um, security controls. Now I'm going to assume that you've actually put in place your risk assessment, so you've decided what controls you need or don't need. But when you're sitting there looking at 27001 Annex A, you find yourself thinking, what the heck does this mean for my context? And yes, you can go and look at 27002, which gives you a little bit of guidance. But the one thing it doesn't do is really put everything in focus. So the book that I've written uh, provides a lot of focus, as it were, a lot of actionable and practical hints on implementing the um, controls from Annex A. But it's got a bonus. It also talks about auditing. So if you're an internal auditor or if you're a, an external auditor, it gives you something, what you can look for what sort of things you need to keep an eye out for, how you might test to see whether a control is in place. Because remember, as an auditor, you're always looking for evidence of conformance. You're not looking to pick holes in someone else's world. You're looking for ways to show that they're doing what you expect them to be doing. So yeah, that's really where, where it's coming from. Perfect. I think that, um, for me, that's what really stuck out because it's quite a unique approach mm -hmm. that I haven't really seen before. As you structured it in a way that shows the reader how to implement an information security management system based on ISO 27001. But you also provide the auditing guidance as well, which I think is really, really helpful because I think that's what is very nerve-wracking for people who try and face these sort of certifications. And I just wondered, have was your decision to use this in the book something that you've come across that people struggle with the auditing process, they're at a bit of a loss with it and they just need a bit more guidance around that area rather than just, say, another book on just implementation? Yes, it's interesting when you look at how you might audit something. Quite often people will automatically go and look at the policy. But if, if the control is about doing something, then it, the question arises, how exactly am I going to find out whether my company or the company I'm auditing really is doing this? And for each control, the approach you might take will vary. So for some controls, you might go and actually talk to some people. Just people, members of staff, members of third-party organisations. Um, or you might choose to look at systems. But as with most things, um, auditors should not be going and logging onto systems with their own passwords, because then you can actually destabilise someone else's environment with the best possible intentions. So the book helps avoid getting you into those sorts of situations. It guides you around some of the pitfalls and it gives you hints and tips on how you might keep your eyes open for evidence that something is happening in a convenient way or in a way that is just part of you being there. So for example, um, physical security. So say the company that you're auditing has chosen to have everyone wear a badge so that you can see who is a member of staff and who isn't. Mm. Now if they don't actually wear those badges and only the visitors actually seem to be wearing the badges how are they going to know that you're a visitor if you just take your badge off 
So one thing you can do as an auditor, just quietly take your badge off and see what happens. And it's an easy way to, to test a control. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting, actually. I mean, I, I just happened to have a conversation with our head of marketing and she said, actually, what, we, why haven't we had a book on controls? You know, there's, mm. for a publishing company that our main bread and butter is publishing on ISO 27001, and that's what we're well known for. You know, it seems the obvious answer, doesn't it? So this seems like a really great time to to get something in the market. So, yeah, I mean, in your in your career, Bridget, have you experienced a lot of queries and um, uncertainty from organisations when they reach auditing stage in your experience? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've audited against um, 27,001, but I've also audited against a PCI DSS. Mm. And in both of those situations, you, if you haven't audited before or if your company has not been audited before, you end up with a room full of blank faces because everyone kind of thinks, well, we know we've done what we needed to do. So A, why do we have to prove it? And B, isn't it obvious that we're already doing it? So this, this book helps you break through that feeling of being completely nonplussed by having to show that you're doing what you already believe yourself to be doing. Mm. It breaks everything down into small pieces. And because you've got the implementation guidance directly in front of the auditing guidance, for each control, you can read both of those pieces if you're being audited and you can see what sort of things the auditors might look for, what their mindset might be and how they might approach things. Also, if you're an auditor and the company that you're auditing has not done something, you can direct them to the implementation guidance so that they have some ideas on how they might get through that. But why do, what do we do? How do we comply with what you're asking for? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, really interesting. And I'm just more interested as well in your approach to writing, because there might be mm. people listening who think, oh, I've, I could, you know, I've got an idea for a book and I would really mm. love to begin writing, but who may feel a bit sort of daunted. It's quite a daun- daunting task, mm. really, to kind of put yourself out there and write, especially in such a niche subject area as well. It's, it's very <laughs> daunting. So I just wondered if you could give any sort of advice or just describe how you go from having an idea to actually mm. writing and feeling comfortable with your proposal, your manuscript, mm. and how was your journey for you with this book in particular? Yeah. Well, this, this book, just to make it absolutely clear, this book is an evolution of previous versions. And I inherited the very first version from a co-author, Edward Humphreys. So I did not start this book from scratch. I developed it over the last two or three editions. But actually, my father's uh, an editor, uh, an author of textbooks. So I've seen it from the, his point of view as well as from my point of view. And the one thing that has been really interesting is identifying what subtopics you want to include. This is assuming you're writing a textbook rather than a novel. The, the environment is completely different. Mm. But for example, if you're starting with an idea that you want to talk about ISO controls, it, why do you want to talk about them? Who's going to benefit? It's not a vanity project. It's always going to be for the customer. Think about it from the point of view of the people you're going to benefit. Who are they? What do, they, what do you assume that they already know? And what do you, where do you want to get them with your book? Mm. So it's, I hate to say it, but it's about bringing people along a journey. I know the word journey gets terribly overused, <laughs> but that's what it is. It's about taking people who are in a known state, and you have to define what that state is, working out where you want to get them and how you can get them there. Mm. Because um, I've seen some fantastic textbooks, for example, that take things in very, very small steps. And that way, people can teach themselves from the textbooks. That's one way. 
The other way is to start by assuming people have a fair amount of knowledge already. So this, the document, the book that I've written, starts by the, in the assumption that people understand what 27001 is about. It does not explain 27001, it's not a dummy's guide. But what it does do is take you from the point of view of, yes, I know what the standard is, and I know how it works, but what do these controls actually mean to knowing and being confident that not only have they implemented the controls, but when somebody comes and knocks on the door and asks to, shall we say, kick the tires, those tires are going to be nicely full and springy, as opposed to sort of sad and, and disappointing and leaking everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> it does sound like the book is going to be nice and relatable, I think, mm. and that's the important thing, isn't it? I think people yeah. who are buying the book, like, like you say, they, they, they mm. may have a bit of prior knowledge of the subject but they yeah. may not and I think yeah. that's the important thing isn't it you, you you need to make something that's going to be relatable to to both markets yeah. it's it's intended to be highly actionable and highly yeah relatable is yeah. a good word relevant to the people that are reading it and meaningful so within their context so not not as not as divorced from reality as a standard has to be. Mm. A standard has to be very generic because it has to be applicable to the whole planet for 10 years. And that's the difficult bit, is the 10 years, because the standards are by default revised every five or usually 10 years. And to have something that is stable for that amount of time, it has to be very generic. Whereas a book like this one can be a lot more directly related to the world it's in. Just um, sort of expanding on that slightly, yeah. I think our listeners might be interested to hear about your kind of background with the International Standards Organisation, because mm. I remember you saying you were there from almost the inception of the standard and you were involved in some of those kind of early discussions. Um, Not of 27,001, no, that was, that's over 25 years old now, so ah. um, I would probably have been in school. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that's a compliment. Sorry, yeah. Yeah. No, no, I've, it was back in uh, about 2006, 2007, mm-hmm. I got involved in standards editing. And I got involved in uh, one of the major revisions of 27001 mm-hmm. and 27002, because the choice was made to revise them both in parallel, mm-hmm. given that Annex A of 27001 is essentially the subject headings for 27002. Um, so yeah, I got very involved at that point. I was sitting in on the well, part of the editing sessions um, representing the UK and yeah, got very in-depth with all of the detail. With It's interesting how people can get, can get really focused on things like, is there such a thing as an information asset? Mm. Is that a phrase we want to use? And people take very strong positions on what they think about mm. that subject. I mean, the, the outcome was that um, the phrase information asset was chosen to be removed. And now it's um, assets and assets and information, oh, sorry, information and assets associated with it. It's that sort of phrase. So yeah, you can have like an hour's discussion on that. Mm. What was the reasoning behind that? The basic concept of the ISO standard is that it's got to be written in the plainest English possible. And yes, if you've read any of the standards at this point, you will start laughing. Um, but the word plain in this case means that it, you have to be able to sit there with the Oxford English Dictionary specifically. And every word in the standard has either got to mean exactly what it means in the dictionary or you've got to have a separate glossary. So if you have a word which is useful, which is already in the English language, you should be using that. And we have the word asset and we have the word information. We don't need a special term 
which is information asset, because everybody had a different idea of what they meant it to, uh, what they intended it to mean, and it actually started more hairs running than it stopped. The other one that um, was particularly interesting uh, was the uh, phrase personal information, which was possibly worse. In the end, the decision was made not to define the term, but simply to use it, and um, in its usage to somehow make its meaning apparent. And uh, as I understand it, people have come to terms with that approach and it is working. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Going back to when you were sort of being part of the revision of the, the standard mm-hmm. budget, is that something you were doing in your spare time or was that part of your key role at the time? It's somewhere in between a hobby and part of my role. Yeah. So when I start with a new organisation, when I, I, I speak to them for the first time, I explain that this is something I've been doing for up to years and it does confer upon the organisation that I work for a certain status and that they have someone who is editing standards. And so that's how I present it. But then I'd spend most of the work I do on the standards, I then do in the evenings and weekends. Yeah, because right, I mean, the book, for example, yeah. writing is, is certainly something you do in your part-time, isn't it? Yes. And I think that could probably be said for most of our authors here at ITGP. Yeah. They all do it yeah. as a part-time thing. And they do it, you know, a lot of the time, obviously not necessarily to make money, but just mm. to... Um, I mean, what, what are the reasons that we, you might write? It's usually because I have been presenting on something and I've realised that there's a seam of knowledge that has been untapped up until now and I want to share it. Yeah. I've had an idea, I've tried it out, it worked, people could relate to it. Let's let's use it, let's give it to more people. And, and does one it, of the does, best ways to do that is in writing. Absolutely and, and would you agree that it kind of adds a nice dynamic to your, to your existing role? It does. Um, it means that I can feel like the things that I'm learning I can start structuring and then present to a new audience so that the things I'm learning other people can learn from and the things that I you know when you they say if you if you really want to understand a subject then you should try and teach it Mm. in a way writing a book is like learning to teach that subject and you find where you've got the gaps in your understanding and you fill them Mm. thank you have we any more questions then I've got a couple (laughs) (laughs) So I was wondering, um, how well do the control sets of Annex A align with the requirements of the GDPR? Um, <laughs> and how can organisations achieve compliance with the two in tandem? Um, so if they, if they were kind of just going about implementing the standard and choosing their controls, I mean, what's the yeah. overlap? Are they, how transferable are they? There are, there are sections of Annex A which specifically relate to personally identifiable information. But... It's not defined in the way that GDPR defines it, because, it, like I said, the phrase personal information, the choice was made not to define it. So when you see that sort of phrase in 27001 Annex A or in 27002, it will not necessarily have the same meaning as it does in GDPR. So it's, it's a here be dragons situation. Mm-hmm. Your best bet is, in fact, to go back to the main text of 27001 and, and do things from first principles as it intends you to. 27,002 was never intended to be a big bumper checklist of everything you need. What it was intended to be was a useful aid memoir once you've done your own due diligence on what you should be implementing. So you do it, you, know, you flip it inside out if you like. You start with 27,001. It says, ah, find out what you value, find, get some people to take charge, um, define your policy, identify your risks, work out whether, they're, whether you're happy with them, if you're going to do something about them, decide what you're going to do. Nowhere in that does it say, go and look at Annex A and, and make a big bumper list. 
is after you've done that, you're supposed to look at Annexe. So your first stage, look at what you need to do, find out who your interested parties are, what their requirements are. One of your interested parties is the government, speaking specifically in the UK, and one of the requirements is GDPR. So you pull the requirements out of GDPR into your ISMS, into your information security management system. Then after that, yes, you can do, if you like, a compare and contrast against Annex A, and there are many examples of people having done this, but do bear in mind where it says personal information or personally identifiable information, it doesn't necessarily mean what you think it means. So that's, that's really how I'd go about it. Just start with the requirements from the law mm-hmm. and pull them in and make them part of your information security management system. You shouldn't be driven by Annex A. Annex A is there to help you. And I think we touched upon this last time we spoke, but for, just for those who hadn't listened to the first podcast, how can organisations draw a line between ensuring that their organisation's information is secure and then control overload, which I know is quite easy to do, kind of <laughs> thinking that you need to have every single one and then actually kind of you know, shooting yourself mm-hmm. in the foot. What would be your advice um, when yeah. selecting controls what, and an appropriate number? Yeah, I, I would start by saying never, ever start with uh, Annex A. Don't select controls. What you should be doing is working out what controls you need to protect yourself. Or let's rephrase that. Look at what your risks are. Okay, maybe you're worried that someone might walk into your site and read what's on your somebody's screen over their shoulder. Or maybe your, all your computers are right near windows and the general public is walking up and down outside and they can see in and they can see exactly what's on your screen. So that drives you to select something to do about it or not. Firstly, do you really need to do anything? Mm. If, you, if you are comfortable with the general public seeing what's on those screens, fine, you don't need to do anything. So that's the first tip. Don't start trying to fix a risk that you're already happy with. You may find that your customers are requiring you to do certain things with information. Maybe they don't want the general public seeing what's on the screen if, if it's their data. So that's where you have to take into account other people's requirements and start pulling those in. And they may override your your natural comfort level with risk. So then what you do after that is work out what's the most efficient way to address the problem. The problem is somebody might see what's on our screens. So you could, for example, turn your screens around so you've got the desks in a different layout. You could, for example, put some blinds over the window. You could make sure that the people who are facing the window aren't dealing with customer data or you could put these um, little filters on each screen. And each of those comes with a different cost and a different thing that people have to either learn or do. And you pick the one that makes sense. Then maybe after that, once you're you're deciding to go for certification, then you create your statement of applicability, which is all the things you chose to do matched up to Annex A. And if there isn't a match, fine. If you say, well, we've chosen not to do that because instead what we did was move our screens, that's fine and it's it's a cheaper option mm-hmm. and it's easier to work with. Mm-hmm. You, you work with what makes sense for your organisation and what brings the risk down to what you're required to do and what is acceptable for you as a company to, to allow you to remain in business and viable. Mm-hmm. That's really helpful, thank you. No problem. Thank you, Bridget. Yeah, I think that's pretty much all we have time for today. Um, But just to let our listeners know that this book of Bridget's, which is going to be launched on the 16th of September, is available on pre-order on our website, which is www.com 
itgovernance.co.uk uh, and it is on offer for the special price of 26.95 so saving 10% um, for anybody that wants to pre-order the book ready for uh, the publication date of the 16th of September so thank you so much for coming in today Bridget and thank you to Nikki and Camden and myself and we'll speak to you soon thank bye you. bye, bye.